0: Welcome to this episode of Self Made. I'm your host D Brown CEO. My guest today is the 13th president of Clinton College in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Please help me welcome the Reverend Dr. Lester McCorn. Welcome to Self Made, Dr. McCorn. Thank you, D. I'm D. Glad Brown. to have Good you to on the, with you. Man, glad to have you on the program. Thank you. I want to jump right in, uh, Dr. McCorn and just really go back to your
1: your childhood where it all yeah. began. Where did you grow up and talk to me about your childhood, what, what it was like? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is west of Boston, in um, a, a very poor community. Uh, it, the community that I grew up in was the result of urban renewal. Mm-hmm. So in the 60s, many communities um, across the country were just kind of uprooted through yeah. this urban renewal program. And the community called the Laurel Clayton neighborhood, where my mother and her siblings grew up, was kind of leveled and they built the housing projects there. And they gave people first dibs to come back to the projects after it was built. So my grandmother got an apartment there and then my mother eventually got an apartment there. And grew up there until I was about 13 years old. My mother was really struggling. We got evicted for the first time, first of probably four or five times, and just kind of struggled there. But I had a great childhood. You know, I didn't know how poor I was until <laughs> until I left Worcester. Obviously when I was going through those homeless years, I mean it became very clear that we were not doing well. Yeah. But the the village, I still had a village that surrounded me. I grew up in church. Um, I'm a third generation AME Zionite was my grandmama's church, yeah. my mother's church. And then I grew up in church and I, am um, I really was a church boy, even though I did a whole lot of other stuff right. and I played sports coming yeah. up. I was an athlete, played basketball, football, and baseball. Baseball is my first love. Yeah. And, um, you know, I was out there with all my friends, grew up in the boys club, um, during those days between the three constants that saved my life were church, school and sports. Those yeah. three three things really guided me. So I learned teamwork, I learned dedication, I learned hard work. Yeah. Um I learned discipline, you know, and and I think that helped me through the very difficult times and it gave me a sense of resilience yeah. to be able to leave the very poor environment um and and aspire to go to college which changed the whole trajectory of my life. So obviously growing up uh and being
0: uh part of multiple evictions and having at some point being homeless uh that had to be a very very challenging situation uh Mm -hmm. take me kind of through that journey of how you were able to deal with that and what
1: the experience was like. Yeah, it it was traumatic. Obviously, I didn't realize how traumatic until later. And I think I really had some PTSD by the time I got to Morehouse, but didn't realize it because you're just fighting, struggling. Um, And so, you know, you have to grind all the time. And it literally was about survival. Right. I mean, I stood in soup kitchen lines. Uh, I went to uh, food pantries, all those kind of things, not just for me to eat, but yeah. for my family to eat. Yeah. My mother was really struggling. We found out later on that she was really having some mental health challenges, you know, yeah. battling depression and just couldn't get out of that downward spiral. And so, as a kid, when you're trying to just make it, you're not realizing the impact that it's having on you. Don't have time to feel sorry for yourself, right? right? You just got to do what you got to do, and then you're. Also, trying to save face—that's the other thing. It's the peer pressure. Yeah. Like you don't want all your friends to know, right? What you know, you going through. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know, you know, the peer pressure for kids—it's right. like your clothes. You don't have dirty, you know, hand-me-downs, all yeah. of that. But I mean, the truth of the matter is, I had a lot of clothes from Goodwill. You know, I had people who gave me clothes. Um, And so we just had to, you know, try to make it. We always had, my mother had a sense of pride. This is the ironic part of it, you know, (laughs) like she didn't want people to know, you know, what was going on. And she was, you know, from what I hear from people, she was a sharp dresser, you know, always a good looking lady, well put together. Um, And so she didn't want people to see that. So she kind of passed that down to us, my sister and I. So we were always, you know, trying to look presentable as we say in the community you know looking presentable so that people don't really know now people who knew knew right my church family knew my pastor came to our rescue and helped us get another place to live and that kind of thing and there were people in my church that never judged me that's the other thing about the village right if i had been in another community i would have been judged people would have looked down on me all that kind of stuff I never felt that when I was coming through. I always felt like people cared about me. They were compassionate and they were still pushing me. Like they wouldn't let me get away with stuff just cause I was poor and homeless. Right. It was like, no, you got potential. So we're gonna keep pushing you. So all of those things helped me. And I always say, it's really the grace of God. Yeah. The last thing I'll say about that, my pastor literally took me into the parsonage with him. So the last time we got evicted, um, I was so upset and ready to give up. I had a quarter in my pocket and went to a payphone. Like, yeah. my kids don't even know what a payphone is, right? <laughs> I went to the payphone and called my pastor. And um, he asked the essential question Lester, where are you? Yeah. Right? It was more than just my geographic location. And um, he came and got me. And move me into the parsonage. Right. I don't even remember how long I lived with him. It might have been a year or so. But his <laughs> wife cooked for me, washed my clothes, they took care of me. He let me work at the church, you yeah. know. I was like the janitor, the sexton yeah. at a young age, cleaning up, cutting the lawn at the parsonage, you know, learning those things that growing up in the projects, you don't, right. you, don't. you know, you don't you don't cut grass, you don't take care of stuff. So he um he literally saved my life. Yeah. And he just died about a year ago, but he was the only father I ever knew. Wow. Um, I wanna know, just
0: you know, during those evictions and being homeless, mm. uh, what were some of your experience in terms
1: of trying to find shelter in between yeah. the next place? What were what were some of the things you Great had to deal Great question. With? It's like a blur to me now, but I remember, first off, we moved into my grandmother's apartment, who also lived in the projects, and she had she was raising three kids. Yeah. Uh, their mother died uh, uh, when she was very young and left three kids, and my grandmother was raising them. So then my mother, me, and my t- sister move into this apartment. I mean, a bedroom. It's a three-bedroom apartment in the yeah. projects, all of us on top of each other. Yeah. And my mother and grandmother started, you know battling and um, they basically fell out with each other. So we had to get out, ended up in a homeless shelter. That shelter, by the way, still exists in Worcester, Massachusetts. I think it's called Abby's House. Uh and It was a shelter for women and children. So they took us in there. If I'm not mistaken, we lived there probably two or three different stints. Yeah. You know and after a while it's like okay you need to get back on your feet so they helped us get on our feet got another apartment same cycle all over again and got evicted again so During that period, um, they're also the government, this is during the Reagan years, Uh right? So they're trying to cut welfare and all of that, making people get off and you got to go get a job. And so my my mother was kind of struggling through that. So we didn't have the safety net. Obviously, we don't have my grandmother anymore. And she had a brother, uh, my uncle Joe, um, who she fell out with him. So we really didn't, other than the church, you know, and after a while, you. You don't want to keep going to that well, you know, we need help again. Can y'all, you know, raise a ministry of kindness offering, help us get another place. So after a while, you become like the boy who cried wolf, you know, and so it got worse. It got worse. I was actually a squatter in an abandoned building. Mm. We were living in a place that had a fire and um, everybody had to get out. And at that time, I don't know what happened to the landlord or what happened, um, but they never really checked on us yeah. and we were squatting in that building, Man. you know, no heat, um, no lights. We were just kind of making it yeah. until we could get to the, to the next place. Um, and, and I was working jobs here and there. So I worked at Burger King for a little while. I worked at Friendly's ice cream, I um, had other little summer jobs. So I became the breadwinner for our family. Right. You know, at like 14, 15 years old. Man, wow. So talk to me
0: about high school. Uh, You know, obviously you're going through some really challenging times at home and but you had the worth all to uh, stick with it and complete your high school um, education. How did you cope with
1: that? What was high school like? Yeah. I, again, I don't know how I did it. Some of it was peer pressure. Like I didn't want to be different. Yeah. Than everybody else. So I was playing sports. So I think that helps, too. Um, I was in student government and in sports. And so those two things made life a little more normal for me. Um, at least I had something to take my mind off of my troubles. Yeah. Um, and when I when I go back home to like I'll never forget a very embarrassing situation. Um, My sophomore year, I got injured, and so I became sort of like the team manager, and the coach would come and pick me up because I didn't have transportation, so to make sure that the manager was there, he would come by and scoop me up, and he really didn't know where I lived. Somehow, somebody told him where I lived, and he came by. Uh, He had another player in the car who came to this it wasn't really a shelter. I can't even describe what it was, but it was connected to um, the food pantry that uh-huh. we were going to, and they just gave us a place to live. But we were sharing it with other people, and he came looking for me, um, and I was so embarrassed that he came into that into that space. But he never said anything about it. Wow! And he didn't say anything to the coach. Yeah. And the coach never asked me about my living situation. Yeah. You know. Um, but it was things like that that I'm negotiating, you know, behind right. the scenes, right. trying to live a normal life. Yeah. You know, and that's what you you know, you have to try to do. So I did that all the way through. The, another thing unbeknownst to me, this is how I feel like people were conspiring on my behalf. Uh-huh. Um, my pastor, um, I didn't find this out until I went back to visit my high school after I was at Morehouse. I went to go see a science teacher who I really liked. And um, he said to me, this is how, this was my clue. He said to me, uh, I'm so proud of you, you're doing so well, because I, I know when you were here, you were from to Post. And I looked at him like, first of all, I, didn't, I wasn't familiar with the terminology, yeah. but I knew he was getting at something. Right. And it was his way of saying, I knew you were poor and homeless and struggling when you were a student. Right. So I found out later, my pastor went to the school to tell the principal and the guidance counselor here's what's going on with Lester. So if you see him falling off in school, this is what's happening. And yeah. we just want you to be aware of this that he's not a bad kid. Yeah. He's not a bad student. He's going through some rough times and if you all could just kind of pay attention to that, I think he'll be fine. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Now, you know, we talked about
0: this journey from no house to more house. So You know, obviously the odds are stacked against you Mm -hmm. in terms of uh, making it in life, uh, coming from your uh, situation. So take me on that journey from how you get from uh, no house to more house.
1: Yeah. It's an amazing journey. So again, my, you know, my presiding elder's wife says to me, you should go to Morehouse. I apply, right? And to be honest with you, D, it's the only school I applied to. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like I had a backup, you know, um, Livingstone College in Salisbury, North Carolina is our denomination's other school. So that's Clinton College's sister school. I knew I could go to Livingstone. I was like, I'm not going to have any problem going there. I need to put all my eggs in this basket and see if I can. And I got in. And uh, again, my guidance counselor. Here's the other thing. He might have been the only African American high school guidance counselor in Worcester, Massachusetts. He was wow. at my high school. Really? Um, wow. I, I since have met his niece, who's a member of the church that I go to in Rock Hill, South Carolina. Really? Just wow. amazing. Yeah. Uh, so he helped put together my package to go to Morehouse. I don't really know how to apply to college. I'm the first generation right. college student. I had done okay as a student. By my senior year, I had picked my grades back up again. I was in honors classes. You know, before I got to high school, like like elementary school, junior high school, I'm like one of the smartest kids. Like, I'm doing really well in school. I loved school, and you could tell. I was a student leader, all of that. But by the time I'm, you know, 14 years old, 13, 14, we're evicted. I'm yeah. spiraling. So it's, it's hard for me. I'm still doing my best, but, yeah. you know, I'm not at the top of my game. I'm not at the top of my class. I'm also going to school. With a lot of smart kids i mean they're they're well off you know middle class upper middle class kids who are doing well you know they're they're going to be all right and so again because i'm competitive i'm trying to keep up with them so finally by senior year you know i'm doing okay i did fairly well on my sats Um, i think i had like a thousand on my sats and you know comparing it to your demographic your peer group You know, I'm looking pretty good. I'm a student leader. Somehow, I got elected senior class president. Man. So I had that, I had my church stuff. So I think all of that made me look like a potential man of Morehouse. Right. So they took a chance on me, you know. They made a good bet, didn't they? I'm so (laughs) glad they did. And do you know what, D, I was elected freshman class president of Morehouse. Wow. And, you know, when you get to Morehouse, everybody's a leader. That's like, right. I'm thinking I'm somebody. <laughs> when I get there, these guys are, like, killing it. Yeah. And uh, somehow, well, some of it is my speaking abilities, right? I gave this speech. To this day, I have classmates who remember my speech as freshman class president. Amazing. So that's how you stick out, right? you got to have yep. one thing that people are going to remember. That's right. That's so right. they remembered my speech. And I dress like a preacher. (laughs) 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 So, you know, all that stuff is working in my favor. And
0: they elected me class president. So uh, speaking of uh, speaking like a preacher, you are a preacher. I am. And so talk to me about when you. Received your calling to yeah. go into the ministry.
1: Yeah, it's interesting you ask it I, I was talking to some of my white colleagues in ministry. It's not quite the same for them Like in in the in the black church tradition You got to have a calling right yeah. you can't just make up your mind. I think I want to be a preacher, right? You know in other faith traditions you can kind of do that. It's a it's a sense of um you know, vocation, you know, that I, I want to do this and I want to do good. In the black church, you got to have a calling yeah. and you got to give full proof, right, right, by this what's called a trial sermon. When I was coming up, we called it a trial sermon. Nowadays, people call it initial sermon. I like trial sermon because it's not that we're... Questioning whether God called you or not, although there is some question of that. But you got to demonstrate and people have to license you. Right. That's how it works in in our church tradition. And so um, I got my call to preach while I was homeless, while I was a squatter in an abandoned building. I heard the voice of God speak to me clearly. And basically, God was saying to me, this is not the end of your story, but this is going to be a part of your story. Yeah. And I want to use you. Right. You know, um, and I remember sitting in church, you know, while the while the preacher was preaching, I'm hearing another sermon that I was supposed to be preaching. Yeah. I yeah. could see myself standing in the pulpit. It was that kind of thing. Yeah. At 13, 14, 15 years old. So at 15, I accepted the call. I preached my trial sermon at 16 years old. I'm licensed to preach at 16. Oh, wow. And got yeah. my first church as a pastor at 20 years old. 20 years old. Mm-hmm. And you had to have tremendous faith
0: because, as you know, <laughs> when people go through trials and yes. tribulations, right, hard times break the faith. Those that's right. that's, the, those are the type of things that make people feel like. God has turned That's exactly uh, his right. back on you, so you had to have some some real uh, faith yeah. to to do that. And then you go on, and you you are a preacher, but you go on to become uh, the 13th president of Clinton College. So, mm-hmm. talk to me about that journey to get to the presidency.
1: Yeah, it was um, in many ways sort of a natural progression for me. Uh, When I was at Morehouse, that's when I got bit by the bug. You know, I wanted to be a college president. I mean, Dr. King was my idol. In fact, um, not everyone knows this, but Dr. King's dream was to be a college president. Really? You know, I he went to get that. Yeah. He went to get this Ph.D. at Boston University. You don't need a Ph.D. to be a pastor. Right. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. He went to do the Ph.D. because he wanted to be a college president. Benjamin Elijah Mays, who was his mentor at Morehouse, one, Mays is the one that convinced him to go into ministry. King wanted to be a lawyer. <laughs> he did not want like many preachers kids he was running as far as he could uh from preaching right he not that he didn't love daddy king you know he looked up to him and daddy king's friends all of them saw something in little martin you know they saw it but he was like i don't want to do that i I don't want to be a black preacher i want to i want to be a college president so he you know prepared himself for that um he made a hard decision uh, while at Boston university towards the end, um, that he wanted to go into, to, I mean, he would already descri- decided he was going to go into ministry because he had gone to seminary, but he decided he was going to be a pastor yeah. and use that, you know, as his launching pad. And so, um, he made a hard decision to go to Montgomery, Alabama to take that church and the rest is history. Right. Yep, that's right. You know, he didn't, he finished his, his defended his dissertation after he was the pastor of Dexter Avenue Baptist church. Um, And so similarly, I followed that path. I wanted to be a college president while I was a student at Morehouse. Again, sort of like this call I had looking at the person up there. I was having that at Morehouse. I'm looking at these people, you know, the president of Morehouse and other people and seeing myself standing there. Yeah. And so I just prepared myself along the way. Went to Yale Divinity School, went to Chicago Theological Seminary. I had started a PhD program at Garrett Evangelical at Northwestern University, not too far away from here. Um, I left that program um, to move to Atlanta. I was gonna work at Morehouse. That fell through while I was there. So I, I, I continued in pastoral ministry and eventually went back to school and got a doctorate. I'm actually finishing a second doctorate right yeah. now. Um, but uh, one of my classmates from this first doctoral program called me about the presidency of another HBCU, and, um, and it just stirred, it reignited this fire in me. And so um, I didn't get that presidency, but in the interim, I was talking to somebody, a couple of our bishops in the Amy Zion Church, who said to me, have you considered Clinton College? Now, the reason this is important is because not only were they hearing my passion, you know, <laughs> saying that I, I had this chance for this other school. that didn't come through. But it was their them affirming something in me right. like they would not have said that to me if they didn't believe. Right. I could be a college That's president. Right. They right. saw it, too. And they were like, you should you should think about Clinton. And so Clinton went through a crisis, period removed the president, my predecessor, and they voted quickly and unanimously to make me the acting president. So I had to go back to my church yeah, and announce to them, <laughs> um, this, this is it for me. You know, it was tough after yeah. 31 years, 31 I had been years. a pastor for 31 years, to leave that and accept this challenge, but I went all in. You know, I was like, this is what I'm gonna do, yeah. move my family to Rock Hill, South Carolina, right. and it was the best decision I've ever made. So talk about some of the exciting things you have going on at Clinton College, because I know
0: you have a very uh, progressive uh, plan to uh, transform the college. Yeah,
1: thank you. Well, um, I'm that guy that likes to take little and try to make it much. Yeah. You know, um, I love a challenge and I love building. And so I saw nothing but potential at Clinton. You know, I knew that it was going to be a heavy lift because it's a very small school, low endowment, not a lot of resources and zero notoriety. Mm -hmm. Right. No one knows about Little Clinton (laughs) College. And still to this day, I go places and people like that's an HBCU. Yeah. It Rock Hill, South Carolina. How come I've never heard of it? And so it gives me an opportunity to talk about it as if it's a new school. Because in a, in a real sense, Clinton is a new school. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's it is being literally being transformed, being introduced to the world. And now I get excited and have a little sense of pride when people say, I heard about Clinton. Yeah. You all are doing this, this, and this. Right. You know, we were the only HBCU last year. We may not have been the only, but we were the first HBCU to give free tuition to all of our students during COVID. Yeah. Um, we took the money that we received Uh, from CARES money and um, American Rescue Plan dollars and other support that we got. Uh, We got some foundational support, corporation support, and we turned around and gave it to the students. So we bought every student a laptop, every one of them has a Microsoft Surface, and they have free tuition for a whole year. So that's one thing they didn't have to worry about. And from that, we began to think about innovative ways. So we used a design thinking model uh-huh. for re-engineering our school. And we began to shift toward more of a human-centered model, like what are the needs of our students? And how do we match these students with the needs of the world and the society? Yeah. Um, so that a liberal arts education from a small HBCU has maximum value. Right. And so we reorganized our school into a work college. So we're We're now insisting that all of our students who live on campus be in the work program, which means that they've got to get a job on campus or off campus, internships, externships, that will in turn pay for their tuition so that when they graduate from Clinton College they will have zero debt right? That's the plan. You talk about a game changer. This is social mobility in reality, right? It's taking these poor kids, giving them an opportunity, giving them a support, obviously an education that no one can take from them and prepare them for the
0: real world. Man, that's that's amazing, Dr. McCorn. I mean, it's amazing work. But what what inspires me most about uh, your story Mm -hmm. is that it, it highlights that here in America, despite what anyone think about this country, anyone who's willing to make the commitment and use their ingenuity and the resiliency can be whatever they want to be. Yes, sir. No matter what economic circumstances uh, you come from, you don't need any advantages in life to, to be successful here. You just need the desire in your heart. Your, your story is just amazing because I, I could see so many people using all of those failures uh, mm. of the system and around them, That's right, right. Uh, using all those excuses to not right. be successful and blame it on the system and blame it on everything uh, but themselves, but you you pulled yourself up by your bootstrap, mm. and you, uh, you're you the epitome of what we made this show to highlight, which is uh, people who are really self-made. So thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Corn, for being on the show. <laughs> To my viewers, thank you for watching this episode of Self-Made with D Brown CEO. And remember, without you, there's no me.